0: Hello, this is Dr. Matthew Thompson, your host today of the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. I will be talking with Mark Mordew, author of the biography Boy on Fire, The Young Nick Cave. Mark has been a freelance writer and editor on and off for the last 40 years, something he mixes up with uh, teaching writing most recently at the University of New South Wales in Sydney and also at the University of Technology, Sydney. Mark began his career as a student editor at the University of Newcastle's magazine Opus before becoming a national rock journalist at the start of the 1980s. His interests have diversified from music into film, books, arts, travel and social justice, winning a Human Rights Media Award in 1992, in 2010 becoming Australian Critic of the Year with the Pascal Prize, Uh, and his work has consistently appeared through mainstream, alternative, and literary publications. He's edited three national magazines, Stiletto in the 1980s, Australian Style in the 1990s, and Neighborhood Paper in the late 2010s. He also published the book *Dastgar*, *Diary of a Head Trip* in 2001, and has recently been developing a reputation as a poet with his first collection called *Darlinghurst Funeral Rites*. I should say that uh, I've known Mark for many years. He's been my editor, originally at *Australian Style* when I wrote for that magazine, and then at Neighbourhood, And I do consider him to be uh, perhaps the the finest editor that I've worked for uh, someone who encourages new ones who seeks to explore the edges of things rather than smooth them off um, anyway he's turned his last decade of attention to to Nick cave in an intense way building up to what is now out on the shelves boy on fire the young Nick cave which is out in the US with Atlantic books in the UK also with Atlantic books and in Australia with Harper Collins. So, let's bring on Mark. Well, thanks Mark for joining us here on the New Books Network. Um, when, when we have people on, we usually start by asking how you came to write the book. So, you know, how you came to write Boy on Fire. But before we get to the kind of, you know, the publishing side or how you set out to do it as a book project, having, you know, read and, and sort of absorbed myself in the world of your book, I thought I'd ask you to, to capture that in its kind of genesis in a way by seeing if you could take us back to, what, 1982 at a at a live music venue in Sydney when you saw Nick Cave with the birthday party and also with Hunters and Collectors. so. Uh, what was the? What did that mean? To you? What was the night like? What was your first experience of Nick Cave on stage in front of you like? And what was the kind of? What did all this mean for you that night?
1: Oh, wow. Well, uh, my my actual first experience was a, a year or two before in Newcastle, my hometown, and the 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 birthday party had really only just changed their name from the boys next door, and the, the, they were kind of in transition between the kind of teenage kind of virtually a pop band almost that they were and this ferocious rock and roll band that they became and and that's what the the name change signified really when they sort of transported themselves into being the birthday party. But basically the first time I saw Nick Cave and and the birthday party, I didn't think much at all of them in in Newcastle. In fact, I hated them. I thought they were pretentious. I thought they were like a, a horribly arrogant, uh, band and that they weren't as good as I've cracked up to be. But fast forward a, a year or two later and uh, at the San Miguel Inn in Sydney and I'm a kind of budding kind of rock journalist, uh, still pretty young, just out of uni, and they were terrifying. They, were, <laughs> they are still probably, on the basis of that night, the most frightening uh, band I've ever seen and one of the most powerful, without a doubt. Uh, The atmosphere in the room was incredibly intense. Uh, You dreaded sort of catching anyone's eyes. Uh, Hunters and collectors were first banned on. Uh, They'd already built a pretty big uh, reputation as a formidable unit and were very influenced by German bands like Cannes and had gas cylinder percussions and had I think they were playing in a stripped-back format that night, but it was a big, powerful sound and... On the basis of how I'd seen the birthday party before, despite their reputation, I just thought, "Wow, there's there's no way they can match what hunters and collectors have, have, have done." It was like being punched out by a, by a heavyweight. Anyway, the birthday party came on, uh, and the atmosphere in the room was still yeah, you know, full of this sort of anticipation and intensity, and and the whole room just exploded. And in a way, it was interesting because once they were on, the the energy that was totally dark kind of eased and became something kind of more sort of joyous or released. So there was a kind of outlet that the band provided in terms of energy and there was lots of slamming and just generally wild behaviour, especially at the front. And um, Nick just put on a sort of huge uh, performance. And I've seen this actually happen to a lot of Australian bands over the years since. There's this thing that occurs, whether it's a, a group like Boys Next Door stroke birthday party or, or later bands like, you know, the Triffords or, or even you know, someone like In Excess for that matter. It, it, something happens when Australian bands go overseas where they, they magnify themselves and they're kind of they're kind of released from the constraining elements of the, the local environment and released from fear of pretensions and they really become something much, much bigger and kind of find a freedom in, in in being unknown in another space and being able to kind of turn themselves into something larger than life.
0: Right and yeah thanks for correcting me on the Newcastle one, I've, I forgot, that's right, you describe how when you first saw Nick Cave play in the the band, it was um, between, like they're still working out where they're at and what they're about and hadn't quite, the engines weren't really firing. Yeah,
1: enough. they are a like, funny hodgepodge of, of, of old influences and new. So you saw flashes of, what well, there was a lot of sort of good stuff from the early stages as well, you know, songs like Shivers and After a Fashion, uh, which were actually Roland S. Howard songs as a matter of fact. And uh, and the hair shirt, which is a Nick song, early Nick, very early Nick Cave song, uh, that was great too. And I, th- I think they were beginning, to, they were basically beginning to mutate I- I into the material that they would lay down for for prayers on fire.
0: Well, why? I mean, what did it um, strike you as at this time? So you you know you, you're growing up in in you know small town Australia, then moved to Sydney, and then You're talking about how these artists go away, get some confidence to break through the fear of pretension barrier that we can talk about with Australia and then explode on stage and stuff. I mean, what kind of sort of uh, voltage or impression or, or, you know, change to kind of jar into you or put through you?
1: Uh, Well... I mean, I guess Australia, it's, it's maybe a little bit difficult for uh, American or, or English audiences to fully understand, but there's always this. But, but then again, if you're from the suburbs and you're dreaming of the city, you know, the same kind of energy, you're always dreaming that this other place is going to be the place that makes you. And any news you can get from that other place, whether it's an album or a magazine or something you hear on the radio, You're hungry for it and you devour it and you study it and and I I guess you're kind of dreaming of escape and you're kind of dreaming of conquering the world too and and being bigger yourself. So I I I think in Australia that's a really powerful guiding force but it it can knock you back too if you don't succeed. You can kind of sort of fall back into the hole and, and, and kind of give up um so you know because the 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 cultural environment in australia can be kind of brutal in its its indifference uh and in its conservatism uh so yeah you're just looking for opportunities i guess and for me it was the same kind of thing you know like i actually just watched that movie almost famous the other night and it reminded me a lot of, of, of the very early days with me just being kind of young and naive and pretty uncool and and just sort of trying to find a way into who I was as a writer and a, and a, a young man and, and, uh, and just do what I felt like, you know. I mean, that's always the great thing about rock journalism as a beginning place. Certainly in those days there was a kind of freedom to it and you could kind of make things up as you went along and your writing could be pretty loose and maybe pretty bad but it could also get very experimental and exciting as well. So... There was always room in in rock journalism for styles of writing that just you just would not see anywhere else. That's why you know if you go back into history, you get a Hunter S. Thompson at Rolling Stone, or or a, or, a, or a Paul Morley, or, or a, a, at the NME, or whoever it might be. That there, there's a there's a, a willingness to to allow chances to happen, um, and that was what I was interested in in the music and the culture and just in what I wanted to do. I. No
0: makes me think of uh, sports writing too so i mean uh, for example when i was working in a newspaper in the sports department the editor was saying sports are repetitive cliche ridden things and so they the editors really value writers who who can let rip in a, in new ways to make these ball games and things yeah. like interesting and there was a an ex english teacher on the staff who did this fantastic article about the Newcastle Knights from your hometown of Newcastle, with one particular guy in charge, uh, with Joey John, saying it was like as if Andy Warhol was at the helm of IBM, <laughs> and that was a sort of intro of the That's story. But it's like, yeah, these these areas of writing that are um, yeah, there's less rigid control of them, you know, and more of interest in bringing it to life. So, what, but what was the path then to to write a, a book about um, Nick? cave as opposed to any other you know musician in australia Oh wow well the path
1: is kind of a bit of a, a, a twisted one it's, it's funny to hear that question you might be able to hear in the background now it's just started to rain here and it's just pelting down and it made me think about the way it kind of rained down on on me uh, i mean initially uh, I, I was always a, a fan of, uh, of uh, the birthday party as because the, they just got better and better um, and, uh, and of Nick Cave as a solo artist. And I'd seen practically every tour that he, he gave from the, the very beginning as a solo artist right through into the, uh, the, the 2000s. It was actually Jack Marks who suggested the idea to me. He's another really great Australian writer. Uh, and I dismissed it at first because I thought I, I didn't want to get kind of sucked into the slipstream of someone else's life. But when I thought about it, I'd been writing about rock and roll and art and books and um, film and all kinds of things for 30, 40 years and I, I realised I not only knew Nick but I'd interviewed his collaborator Mick Harvey, I'd seen Roland S. Howard perform, I'd interviewed Vim vendors the filmmaker, I'd interviewed all these other uh, musicians and figures and I thought, oh my God, I actually, I actually know everybody and I'm almost the same age as these guys, and I've grown up in many similar ways with many similar influences, which is why I was interested in the first place. Um, And we're part of the same culture, so it would be crazy not to do it. So I came up with the idea, and I was originally going to do a a more uh, conventional, if ambitious, sort of A to Z life, uh, full life biography, and it just got too much. And the whole thing kind of spun out of control. Um, And I was just struggling financially, struggling with a collapsing relationship, just struggling to sort of figure out how to get on top of the material and and live. And, um, I mean, that's the irony of biographies that that your own life gets in the way of the life you're writing about. And it all kind of came unstuck. Uh, So... There's a kind of a few lost years there that were more to do with me getting my own act together. And then just uh, literally uh, a year and a half ago, I was able to regenerate interest in the project and do what I'd wanted to do, which was a a portrait of the artist as a young man. That had been my sort of... Because I'd already done just a tonne of work in that area and I'd realised that you could kind of see the seed of everything to come, uh, if I can use that word, to... In the young man, and it's a bit like that sort of Jesuit saying, "You know, give me the young man, the child uh, t- till seven, and I'll give you the man. It's it's so true. And, and we know it ourselves as we get older. We we reflect back on our, our boyhood or, or our girlhood and, and our, our teenage years to, to, to figure out what we are and, and to figure out why we act certain ways that trouble us and, and also to find new energy. We go back to our youth and our childhood to kind of regenerate ourselves, I think. So... It's, I realised there was a lot of important stuff there, and a, and a lot of great social and cultural material about about Australia and, and just the global culture at the time, and, and 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 how it how it worked, and and why these kind of encampments that became sort of punk rock and post punk grew up in these obscure places like like Melbourne, not obscure in the sense of cities, but obscure in the sense of clubs like Melbourne's Crystal Ballroom. Or or CBGBs in New York, or you know what was happening with the punk scene in London—the the, literally just camps that, that that had a larger kind of impact and, and grew. So it was a, it was it was long and it was messy, you know. And um, uh, and I, I think now, uh, in retrospect, it, it's it's all the better for it. But I, I don't know if I'd want to go on that kind of journey again. No, I
0: was going to ask you about if you know. Nietzsche's eternal recurrence thing, like would you say yes to li- living this exactly the same way again to get this book done? Uh, or is it yeah, too brutal? And
1: Well, you know, I, I, I probably wouldn't change anything. You know, I, I worry about the, the impact that, that, it, that it had on, you know, my family, my kids. Um, uh, but, you know, like you can't kind of, go back over that territory, you can only go forwards. Uh, I mean, I want to do a volume two because I, I did so much work. I've got enough material to do uh, the birthday party in London and, and Nick Cave in Berlin. And that's a kind of confined and measurable period. Uh, and uh, I, I'd kind of like to honour too all the people who gave me their time and energy as well. Um, so we'll see about that. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird biographies. How much your own life gets entwined with it, uh, and how much in writing about someone else you, you're also puzzling out who you are as well along the path. Um, I think any. Yeah, well,
0: you're you're I'm inter-
1: oh, sorry, Mark. Yep. I, I just think any biographer that doesn't sort of recognise that they're writing about themselves in some ways is, is is either lying to themselves or. But you don't want too much of the biographer on top of the, the subject, uh, you know, because I think that's a bit too narcissistic. You just need to be aware of the, the sense of uh, how writing about anyone is, is a type of, of projection and, and, and a sort of chemical interaction and what the, the sort of politics and psychologies of that are. And, and in order to be able to sort of kind of become a, a bit more objective again i think writing as a process usually you're looking at the page and with a bit of time to cool off which a book certainly allows for you can kind of see what you're doing and what you're saying and some of the the, the values in it that reveal as much about you as the subject
0: well you know when you're talking about that i'm thinking of um, parts of the book where you are you know riding in cars with nick cave or at his house or you know in his presence mm. and this, or with his children in the park and so on. Yeah. And it makes me think of the, you know, the Frank Sinatra has a cold story. Go to mm-hmm. one, even though Frank Sinatra didn't speak to him, it's a much more telling piece than if it had been a sit down interview with PR agents around and things. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, the, the actual uh, parts with you there with Nick are, are very revealing of Nick, I think. And partly, I know that the kind of against the image uh, unnecessary decency that kind of, I guess you describe. he's it's one of his life's projects, I guess, to kind of become a half <laughs> decent person. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> and and it wouldn't come out like so much without, without you being there. Yeah. Um, I, don't,
1: I don't know how, how, how flattered he'd be by that, but I, I think it's true. And, uh, and I think he was working on it when I first met him and, and the tragedy of losing his son, Arthur, has uh, accelerated that that need. I mean, it's just a need in all of us, you know, as we get older. We, we want to try and be better people because, you know, especially if you've got kids, but you're know, getting older, you're coming face-to-face with your mortality. You want to kind of rise up rather than, than sink down. and and uh, But it's a process and... Uh, and, and I also think, you know, there's still plenty of dark energy in in, in Nick, even even though you know, like he, he's got the red hand files and he's been through this tragedy. And there's a tendency to to sanctify him. You know, there's still a, a lot of uh, human edges there present, you know. So I'm aware of that side to him as well, very much. But still, well, sure. I mean, yeah. uh, well, I was, I'm just just thinking about what you said and this whole kind of. Thing. i mean you know if you look at boy on fire i mean basically the, the a very simple version of the journey is you just see this kind of you know brilliant uh, beautiful young country boy who's a, a handful of trouble because he's wild but basically a very sort of sweet kid and then he gets to melbourne and and and, and school and there's the you know boarding school there and the, the the bullying and and sort all boys and just the and it, and, it get, and the contest and the friction with his father who's a kind of inspirational but looming dark figure in in the vein of Red Right Hand the song and you you just sort of see it all get darker and darker and drugs come into it and really by the end of the book he's this kind of sort of this graduate heading into the demonic uh, uh, to wreak havoc on the world with what will be the, the birthday party but I, I guess what I hoped when you look at the framing of the book and there, there's that all that personal stuff about how I got involved and me and Nick together because there are these this sort of prologue and epilogues that sort of give that wider context you sort of see it in the larger story that, that Nick's kind of come back to that we're trying to get back to that that boy and that youth, and to, to to not lose that soul, basically, which is really what it's about.
0: Well, there's fascinating lines from you through it, um, where you're talking about like the country town in Victoria, in Australia, that that uh, Nick Cave grew up in, Wangaratta, or Wang, as they call it in there, and. And how there's this, um, like you said, he's a country boy, and there's the walking around barefoot, jumping into rivers off bridges, and shooting, you know, diseased rabbits at point-blank range, and all the country boy stuff. Someone's dad giving underage kids a six-pack of beer and a gun, you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. All that stuff. But you talk about how, you know, Wangaratta is also where the rats of Tobruk, the the... The Australian Army unit that that stopped um, Rommel and the Africa Corps in its tracks for the first mm-hmm. time, were stationed with lots of Wangaratta guys in it, and and you know there's a there's a like um, mongrel element that you talk about too, where it's like you, you take the the kind of intrepid um, boys of the country thing with all their toughness and don't give a stuffness and things, but when you throw in um, boredom. I think you mentioned how it can turn like thuggish and, you know, malicious in a way at yeah. times. And, and, um, Nick Cave is, is just does, doesn't look like one of the country boys with his black suits and white shirts and, um, you know, gaunt kind of like uh, William Burroughs with long hair act on stage or whatever. But, but yeah, the there is that right, that mongrel in him, that, that 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 like shithead country boy on the rampage quality. Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, he's, a, he's and Nick's a much physically uh, powerful guy than you might think. I mean, some people probably do perceive that, but I remember being backstage with him one time and looking at his hands and and I like. His his fists were like clubs. I was just so big, and I I just registered pretty naturally as another male. Whoa! I would hate to get into a fight with you. Like they were like mallets, you know. So he's 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 he's, he's deceptively uh, powerful physically, and yeah, you, know, you only have to look at like even in a way, just those early photos of, of, of Nick Cave and Roland S Howard together when they're kicking off uh, as a creative partnership and. Roland S. Howard looks like this strange little bird and Nick Cave looks like this sort of kind of evil monkey, you know. And you just think, well, if you give heroin to these two individuals for the next twenty years, who will survive? And you you would pick Nick Cave because he clearly looks the, the more physically able of the two. And and well, sometimes I look at that that bigger history which goes on outside the book, but starts in the book with drugs and and more an intellectual violence than an actual violence, but there is actual violence there as well. Uh, and just risk-taking, you know, just lots of r- young men risk-taking going on, riding on the ribs of cars and, and the use of drugs themselves and just pushing the envelope in all kinds of ways. Um, you, just, you just see the, 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 that Nick has the DNA as well as the luck to survive that that maybe some others don't.
0: And what um, what does he see as his Australianness? Like just before talking to you, I went back and I watched his acceptance speech at the Australian Music Industry Awards. Mm-hmm. So that's his induction into the Hall of Fame, the ARIA Awards, and that. And he's, you know, he's kind of um, slamming the organisers for not having his whole. Band up because he's saying that they said part of the bad seeds or those bands are foreigner or the bad seeds are foreigners and things and uh but he said we're an australian band out in the world uh you know writing delivering australian music to the world um what does what is australian to nick cave
1: oh that's a really interesting question because i mean so often this comes up for through- so many australian artists not just nick cave and i mean we're this weird sort of compendium yeah if you're just looking at rock and roll of of english and american influences and i guess the the, the sort of the the nature of distance itself in terms of how we translate that and then the the the, the warp of the the landscape and the the local environment which kind of brings in its own uh, rhythms if you like if you, you you willing to believe that uh i mean particularly yeah i think nick has a feeling for it because he is a country boy i suspect people coming from the cities uh, are more confused as to to how to to answer that question because so much of the answer does come back to to feeling and and intuition and and spirit uh because you're, you're entering into a kind of global aesthetic currency in terms of rock and roll or art or whatever it might be and yet you've got this sort of identity that's been forged in the in the in the physical world of Australia one way or another I mean you know in the past when he used to talk about Wangaratta which was where he grew up he 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 would often be really pretty disparaging but there's a a real affection for that place as well And, and it's kind of I think it exists as much uh, which he himself says it exists as much inside him as, as a memory. So it's a, it's a dreaming place. So I, I think Australia, for, for Nick, provides a kind of uh, place in his imagination to, to dream and, and recreate. And it, it's, it's, a, it's, I mean, he hasn't lived here for, what, 30, 40 years, 40 years. Um, so, you know, it, but he comes, he, he, he did come back every year to, to visit his mother and he would always time his tours. Fortunately, it was in, at the height of summer, but he, he would always time those tours not just for Christmas but also because his father uh, was killed in a car crash, crash in very early January, so Nick would always be home uh, on the anniversary of the death of his father for his mother, uh, it, which tells you something about Nick's real um, sense of himself and his... his the value he places in family and his feelings for his mum and those sort of sensitivities. Um, so it's, it's it's a kind of I just think Australia's a really important dreaming place for him and and humour comes into it too. You know, like one of the things I, I was really pleased about with Boy on Fire is that sort of between the lines and in, in the comments of Nick Cave, but but also other people in the book like Roland S. Howard and Mick Harvey. They, they it's a, this just this really dry. Funny way of speaking, I I can see why journalists in the UK got confused by them because they'll say something that to me I think is really hilarious but it would be treated as a a dead straight comment Uh, and I think maybe only another Australian or a person who's been in Australia for a while can understand that that black humour which is is pretty black sometimes uh, and very, very dry.
0: Or possibly Lou Reed who just comes out with like deadpan zingers that are... (laughs) people would jump on take seriously yeah, yeah yeah but i mean there's a there's a line you have from nick that he i guess he said to you in there in one of your times with him which which or i don't know if it's to you or not but he says how i'm an australian i, I mean we don't even so, half time we don't know whether we're joking or not like yeah it's a he said that to great me great line about yeah it's a terrific line you know like um and, and it, it led me to think about Kurt Vonnegut and Mother Night and this thing of like, be careful what you pretend to be because you can become it, you know, and, and that the sort of vitriol that there is for Nick Cave out there, whether it's people who feel they've been betrayed by him, hurt by him, that he's a, a creep and a misogynist and, and everything that maybe he is those things in various ways and stuff, but. But, like, there's a strange um, ambiguity of, of where performance is and where life is or anything. And Well, um, you
1: know, when you perform, I mean, any performer, it's, it's an enlarged, and, and I, I, you can count uh, novelists in this too, you know, it's not just stage performance. And, and people do it on Facebook, for that matter, you know, it, it, i think artists are a little bit more aware of the the process and the transformation you you're enlarging yourself you're're you're you're, you're, in, you're using a part of yourself and and a whole imaginary area to create this kind of hyper being or meta representation of you uh but it isn't really you in total i mean it's like that cliche of of you know you you meet a a, 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 a comedian and all they want to talk about is philosophy and you meet a philosopher or, or, or of depression and, and they're hilarious people, you know, like, like what we are in our work isn't the total of, of how we are day to day. And I also think in work there's a, there's a sort of mixed um, contrarian thing of on the one hand representing you know, if you're any good with what you do, the, the, the very worst of yourself and using it as an energy, and also trying to use your work sometimes to sort of dream yourself out of trouble so your work is maybe a wish of who you would like to be, which again can kind of cause a sense of hypocrisy from some people if you're writing very beautiful things but acting in very ugly ways, you know. So, But perhaps your work is an attempt to sort of heal yourself. Maybe that's being a bit generous. But I can see all that in, in, in Nick's work, the, the sort of the extreme good and bad of it. sort of manifestations of of, uh, aspects in him and I can see why people have mixed relations with him that go right back and again in Boy on Fire you're seeing the, the formative nature of how Nick treats people and how people feel about him from the very beginning and actually one of the things I'm most proud of about the book is being able to include all these sort of microbiographies of people around him and not just his collaborators, but but the kids he grew up with, and and how their dreams have got mixed up with 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 Nick's own life, and and how they measure themselves against him, and how for some that's that's crushing or depressing or or or, or angering, and how how for, how for others it's a source of, of of pride and 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 warmth and 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 just the whole sense of. Of, of what growing up itself means, I think that's a really important thing to the book.
0: Well, you know, like the one of his neighbours uh, talking about Nick as a—he's what did he say? He was—he told you that Nick was like a branch of his dad's anger, oh, yeah. which I thought was a fascinating line. And and also the town wangarata, its like the whether it's that neighbour or another one of Nick's friends saying. That uh, when Nick went on to be a you know rising musician and notorious for his antics and and things, it was like Wangaratta thought he was a bit of a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> like, but but when he becomes successful, they start to like him. You know, it's <laughs> like it's like a if if you take one guy from a country town who's just a drunken jerk or something, uh, that's that. But then they, if they can also Become a test cricketer or whatever. It's like, oh, we they're, they're great, you know. It's <laughs> yeah. like, uh, and then and then Nick, what Nick wants to have a statue. He's like giving interviews interview saying there should be a like a metal st- statue of himself on horseback. And,
1: yeah, Which I, mean, I think he does want.
0: <laughs> it's, <laughs>
1: it's
0: wild, isn't it? Like the ego is just well, that's it. Complex and big. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean. In, the, in Wangaratta, yeah, he's... I mean, this relates heavily to the stuff in the book. His father, Colin Cave, um, was a, a total dynamo and uh, a really major figure. And if Nick hadn't have got so famous, he'd be known as Colin Cave's son. Colin Cave kind of revolutionised adult education in the state. He was lobbying to get, uh, I think, a university set up a, a, a around Wangaratta. Uh, he was... Um, Uh, heavily involved in local theatre, both in Wangaratta and at the Malvern Theatre in in Melbourne. And I think a lot of Nick's sense of drama and and acting derives from the influence of his father. Uh, And and really importantly, his dad ran this big symposium on on the Australian outlaw, Ned Kelly, who's, I I guess, a bit like a sort of like combination of Robin Hood and Jesse James, um, for reference over in America. And... um, and the weekend symposium, uh, Colin Cave wrote a, a really good and entertaining uh, paper about the outlaw and, and uh, how he was you know, shot down at Glen Rowan and the armour that he wore. Uh, and it's almost like it's, it's this mythical tale really. But what's interesting about that symposium is that that then had a big influence on uh, I think I always forget the, the, the main kind of biography about Ned Kelly's life. And that biography and the symposium also influenced Peter Carey's book, The True History of the, the Kelly Game. And and Nick was raised through his father in all this history stroke mythology uh, and I think always kind of loved all that storytelling associated with it and sort of came to understand history and mythology as very interrelated, and, and that that's always been on his mind from when he was a kid, just from watching his father's obsession uh, with this outlaw and and the nature of a, a story as larger than life, and and where history and myth blur together. And I think he's been cultivating it f- from the get go.
0: And uh, Ned Kelly, of course, been the the guy eventually gunned down and captured and then hanged after his um, his last stand wearing armour, like, a, what, beaten out of ploughs and, mm. uh, like, you know, and, and, and coming back to the siege and the standoff when he could have got away and all yeah, this. to uh, try and find his brother, but, you know. I mean,
1: it, it, yeah. the, the story of, of Ned Kelly and the siege at Glen Rowan, uh, I, I, I mean, they rained thousands of bullets down upon them, The outlaws had melted ploughshares down into kind of these, this sort of this tin arm, thick tin, thick iron rather armor. I mean, it's 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 if if it wasn't true, you'd just think this is just ridiculous. It's it's surreal, Uh, and it's and it was it it was the, the the outlaws were burnt out. So two of the bodies were burnt almost beyond recognition. One was strung up that was more recognisable against a, a wall and it's the first major Australian press photograph ever that uh, I think, um, which, again, tells you something about Australia, you know, uh, yeah. and uh, and and that's a, an image that Nick uses near the start of the film The Proposition and it's a, an image that Nick references in songs like Sunny's Burning and... Um, so he was really uh, affected by it. And I don't think he was traumatised by it. He was thrilled by it, you know, and, and also spooked by it too because there's a sense of these romantic but violent ghosts kind of traversing a kind of a sort of hot, strange, sort of almost mystical landscape. And I think that affects the vibe of a lot of Nick's songs.
0: Yeah, and, and, and amongst this... Um I uh, I remember having uh, had to speak to a few, like, uh, historians of the Kelly story, uh, uh, like, because I was editing a book someone had written on Ned Kelly once, and, and some of it just didn't quite add up. So I pressed them on wh- why what happened at the siege happened and things, and they eventually just came out with, like, well, we're, they're all completely wasted. Like, <laughs> they were trashed. I mean, <laughs> So you can't understand the decision-making mm. without understanding, like, profound, prolonged intoxication yeah. either, you know.
1: And yeah, I can believe that totally that, because it's it's like a, a madness has set in, so it defies logic. Yeah. And, and yet, on the other hand, it's quite brilliant like the, and, and uh, you know, I mean, it's like the ending of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid if you chuck in medieval armour as well
0: homemade mm. it's just like whoa all right yeah and then there's the what earlier there's um did nick uh, ever talk about the gerildery letter so the the letter by ned kelly that he dictated because he was illiterate that is kind of reads it in parts like a nick cave song oh, yeah. you know i am an orphan son and, oh yeah and you know i'm gonna there's gonna be blood and all this and oh yeah know, hear me now the end is coming kind of stuff oh, yeah and,
1: uh, yeah I'm trying to remember like the cuz I mean we definitely talked about all that stuff I um but I definitely hear I hear Nick's father's voice and I hear Nick's voice in Ned Kelly's the journal letter most definitely uh particularly uh Nick's early sort of uh Early voice, you know that that was there in the birthday party, and 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 the, the sort of Berlin era bad seeds, you know, and and that probably again yeah. relates to your earlier question, yeah, Nick's sense of Australianness, and and that this because in the Gerildry letter, it's really funny, it's very disrespectful to authority, but it's also very threatening too, um, you know, it's and it, and it's very and it's also kind of. Uh, not, not exactly. Woe is me, but you know I'm 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 being beset unfairly by by these people, by the authorities, and yeah, you know, wrongly accused, and uh, and I'm going to rain hell upon you all uh, justly, uh, and <laughs> in the meantime, delivering all manner of insults to sort of flat-footed policemen and whatever it says. I forget now, but <laughs> it's pretty hilarious to read. It's just. A fourteen, a hilarious fourteen-page insult with 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 some malice and menace chucked in.
0: Yeah, and and
1: semi-biblical in tone yeah, at times. Yeah, quite poetic, really. Like it's when you realise, wow, okay. So, so Ned Kelly was a, actually, you know, uh, particularly when you think of his background, this yeah, you know, remarkably uh, intelligent. Uh, uh, and humorous individual. And, and in that respect, I can see that Nick might have felt some sympathy as well, that he was a bit of a, a kind of unruly country boy like
0: him. Well, the, you know, the um, anti-authoritarian quality, I guess, is um, perhaps one of the Australian attributes. I mean, Australia's got a weird mix, I find, of um, of like just going along with anything authority says, mm-hmm. you know, with the police and just find everything. And, um, you know, you have strip searches at, at downtown Sydney main train stations at lunchtime in case someone's carrying drugs or something and, and there's no protests about this really of any – I mean, you know, it's just – in some ways it, it's, like, it's like murmur, mumble, complain about the police but do whatever they say. But on the other hand, there's none of the kind of American um, sucking up to – Power figures with the yes sir stuff and all that kind of thing for everybody and Mr President and whatever. Mm. Um, but that kind of mongrel anti-authoritarian thing um, reminds me in some ways of like the quality of Bon Scott and and Nick. I mean Nick's in there talking about how the um, you know he's got this thing for ACDC and and then when you when you read Boy on Fire and you see what um, this era that Nick's really coming to life in, which is the late sixties and then through the seventies. And then, you know, your book prompted me to go back and watch um, live footage of Bon Scott in ACDC in the seventies. And there's like this, this is like this nasty, brutal, searing, sweaty, gleeful performance of like dog eat dog when they were in Glasgow in 1978. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's not pretty. It's not, um, it, it You know, it's not anything, but, but just this sort of, uh, soaring testosterone, um, like country boy, shirt stripped off, sweaty, riding the moment to its maximum thing. And it's, it's like, uh, you can, I can see what, what he, you know, what, or I can see what I imagine he, he like digs in that kind of thing. It's. It, it's like so uninhibited and, and and just so in your face. Yeah. And, and 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 just doesn't give a stuff, you know.
1: Well, I mean, I should say, I, I'm not sure how, how huge a fan of ACDC Nick really is like it was Mick Harvey, Nick too. they're into sensational Alex Harvey band who had a kind of similar energy or maybe a bit more kind of cabaret, but that that funny mix of entertaining yet yet threatening that Alex
0: Harvey oh, had Oh, yeah, I don't mean the the music itself because I yeah, mean yeah, it's you've more got the performance so much in there about, exactly, you know, like, Yeah, the attitude it's completely, of,
1: yeah. you know, the, and and yeah. and the, the the complete sense of fuck you uh aggression and humor and and just I mean it, it's it feels corny saying it but just that rebellious take no shit thing that 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 definitely early ACDC had with Bon Scott and the way they took on the world and 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 basically took the world by the throat really just by being such a tough, great rock and roll band uh, without any apologies, I think that was definitely inspirational. And, and there's this weird thing about Sensational Alex Harvey band just a few years before that were obviously Alex Harvey is an inspiration to Bon Scott. He was an inspiration to Nick Cave. And just that thing of combining theatricality and entertainment with something that's that's really kind of like a bit of a street hoodlum kind of energy and that's a bit bit scary you know i, th- I think that yeah. there's a there's there's a buzz that that came off that for a lot of australian performers that came through alex harvey and charge Bon scott nick cave you know jimmy barnes with early cold chisel like even you know skyhooks a little bit not quite the same thing but you know that there's this 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 combination of of performing uh entertaining and being willing to threaten which may relate to to just how tough the the pub and entertainment environment was around australia like it's not exactly the the warmest place to perform if you can't kind of kick out the jams and and give people an energy buzz like you soon know about it, particularly back in the seventies and eighties.
0: Well, I, I, there's a quote that he's said, you know, about how they made the mistake. He puts it ironically, whatever of of playing to the thinkers, not the drinkers. Um, And it it just makes me think of this with the Scott thing versus the, um, the intellectual appearance of Nick cave and, you know, his persona and stuff. But, uh, in both kind of scenes, when I've been in, into the, that sort of post-punk thing in the 80s in Australia and into the kind of hard rock slash, you know, more into the metal end at the same time, um, both scenes uh, had interchangeable anarchic, you know, violent overload to them. Um, and both were about, you know, catharsis and a kind of shamanism and things as well. But the crowds would have absolutely nothing to do with each other. So, like, I went to ACDC in the 80s once, and there must have been 40 people thrown out before ACDC even came on for for (laughs) brawls and vomiting, collapsing, and and brawls that were so big, you know, people had to, like, flee the area. Well, like, it was like a cartoon with just these rolling tumbleweeds of fists everywhere, you know. And and then on the other hand, you know, the kind of – or not lubricated end so much but, but um heavy slamming at, at at thrash bands and punk bands and things in the eighties in, in in Australia. And each one would understand the the emotional experience of the other, but they wouldn't mix with the crowds. So so one is all people bust in from the western suburbs or something, the other one's all inner city and some suburban elements. But the this mongrel energy is, is like very potent in, at both ends.
1: Well, I mean, what you're talking about, I reckon you can see as a more direct influence, like coming through bands like Radio Birdman and the Saints. You know, like Saints especially, like they were absolutely inspirational energies for the boys next door and and Nick Cave, uh, and they definitely kind of kind of galvanised them to intensify uh, and to. Kind of know where they were going and what they wanted to be, and you know, I mean, yeah, you know, which I say in the book, like the the boys next door. I mean, they're really like we look back at at, at everything now through the prism of Nick Kay because he uh, is such an incredible success story. But when the boys next door were formed as a group and. They were very much a group and, you know, you had a, a, a world-class guitarist like Roland S. Howard. You had a world-class music arranger in, in Mick Harvey who has not only worked with Nick Cave but also, you know, PJ Harvey on what I think are her best albums and bands, totally bands, here, yeah. bands here like the Cruel C. I mean, Mick Harvey is one of those collaborators who seems to sort of work alchemically with people and bring out the best of them wherever he goes. Then you had Tracy Pugh, who was was perhaps the most genuinely thug-like character in the Boys Next Door and whose bass sound really was the the sort of you know, scary heart and throb of, of the birthday party. But he was also this sort of, you know, amazing intellectual guy who excelled them all at school and sat around reading Plato and and then getting into fights with the audience later on. So he's he's full of contradictions. And then you've got a drummer like Phil Calvert who's really affected by jazz and, you know, practising to James Brown and who, who brings this incredible spring to what could be this more kind of, you know, rigid and... and and less attractive band in many ways. So he brings a kind of rhythmic intelligence and invention to the party. So there's there's, this, and so they're all, they're all stars and they all, their influence individually uh, continued uh, long after uh, the birthday party uh, disintegrated. And uh, I think we need to be mindful of just how, how much of a unit they were at the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, um, Again, watching them before we spoke, some of the concerts from like 1983 or whatever, just that 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 potent mood that gets established through the through the guitar and things, just mm. sort of jarring, gradual rhythms that build up, you know. And Nick Cave works with it and stuff, but it would not be the same without the that thrumming kind of menacing sound that that, that builds up. Yeah, I think that you know, I mean that that. It's, it's detailed in Boy on Fire, but you see, you know,
1: they basically, they were a school band, you know. They started playing together in second year at high school. I think Nick joined in, actually joined in third year. You know, they were just doing, um, you know, covers by you know, Alice Cooper, the Stooges, um, you know, uh, all, acts like that. And they were, then they started to develop a few originals from pretty early on. Um, I think Mick Harvey in particular was pushing them in that direction and Nick had had lyrics he was kind of playing with. Uh, and then Roland S Howard came into the picture and, I mean, he really was the one that, that transformed them onto an, another level because he, he'd already written um, the song Shivers you know, while he was still at school, uh, which is kind of remarkable, uh, both melodically and lyrically uh and uh you know so that they they just they really just all the right people came together at the right time and you know by the time they were leaving australia they they'd been playing since they were sort of well how it came a little later but they'd basically been playing from when they were you know 14 years old together so they were a hardened season unit that had practised and practised and practised and had played a, a, just an absolute load of live shows, more than most people might play across their their, their entire 20s in, in some
0: places. Well, with the, the, you know, going to school together and stuff, I, you know, I come across some, you know, critiques of Cave that he's just a private schoolboy prat and things. And, and then I, I was looking at... Um, What's his essay, The Monarch of Middlebrow? You know that one? Edwin Crawford yep. about um, how Cave is just a, a middlebrow misogynist whose mm-hmm. stuff is an equivalent of, of like, um, sexist gangster rap, no more sophisticated or evolved than it. Um, but it appeals to people who want to think that they're smart and so on. And he pe- – if he feeds into the cultural cringe in Australia. People here or in Australia think he's smart because he's popular in Europe and admire him because he's so confident, which is so different to what Anne Wynne Crawford calls the ritual self deprecation that marks Australian artists and things, you know, I mean, how many people want to propose having a, you know, a massive bronze statue of himself on horseback in their hometown mm-hmm. and things, you know, and um, what did you make of all that? Like that, that his, that, that, that portrait of him?
1: Uh, well, I don't know. For me, I guess it's a bit simplistic. Uh, and um, and for me too, it's it's a, a type of criticism where you kind of, you know, plant a sword in someone's body and stand on top and say, look at me. Um, so I, I was, you know, but I, th- I think there's lots of truth to it um as well though that but that, those elements but th- those are not the only elements so if i wanted to just worship nick Cade, then i would only talk about his love songs and you know, and the artistic side to him and i would leave out all the stuff that anwin crawford talks about yeah. in the same way that i think in that essay she leaves out all the stuff that doesn't fit uh, for the sake of what is convenient to uh, a sort of agitprop prop kind of attack, um, so you know, uh, as a, a kind of a political sort of essay assault on his aesthetic, I think it's really good, but I, I, I can't really um, take it one hundred percent seriously because there is so much else that doesn't fit into that pattern um one thing that is true though that i think is interesting is this whole thing of uh ego and when a a performer goes big and there's a lot of um paranoia in australia about being pretentious and being poetic and and these kind of things And, and it inhibits a lot of people and restricts them uh and you know when you look at really big Australian performers like a bon Scott or a Michael Hutchins or a Nick cave they, they you know like they they have sort of had to sort of bust through in some way or another and and magnify themselves and all that's what all performers do they they make themselves bigger than the cultural environment that they're in and they become these kind of they become their own invention Uh I guess the danger is at some point, you know, the mask you invent for yourself sort of gets stuck on your face, and you can't take it off, and you can't be whoever you might have once been for real in your private life. I mean, that's what happens to someone like Michael Jackson or even Prince, for that matter. You know, um, yeah. So it's a it's a it's a complex thing. But you know, I don't know if I'm answering your question properly. But I I, I had I I just had really kind of mixed feelings about. About, a lot of people love that essay by Anwyn Crawford, uh, but I feel like it, it, it plays to a certain set of perceptions that are even more um, popular now in, in some ways in the, the current sort of identity politics climate where we have an idea of people uh, that we prefer a kind of, a sort of anthemic version of them as good or totally bad and we can't kind of accept A picture that I hope is already evident in Boy on Fire where a person is beautiful and horrible, is good and bad, uh, is dark and light, does really lovely things and then turns around and behaves like an asshole. uh, is horrible to women and then very sensitive to women and caring and defending women in certain situations in a way that no other male at the time is doing. So there is a whole mixture of things So this is basically what most of us know ourselves to be. And that's a kind of complicated, inconsistent human being.
0: Yeah. And um, I also, on the pretentious side, like uh, apart from the, the mix of, you know, good, bad, ugly and everything in between, I, I I'd, I'd also remember like an interview from years and years ago, the 80s in spin magazine with perry farrell of jane's addiction when they were i guess i don't know a a bit like the birthday party in some ways to me like i I remember seeing them back then before they self-destructed and and there was that similar energy of of violence um in the air and and perry farrell was hell bent it seemed to me on turning the the audience against themselves and and provoking kind of self-loathing in the audience um and if there was a song people wanted to hear then mutilating it and and making it into something else that was ragged and brutal when people wanted something else and and highly like intelligent but contrarian um self-destructive brutal edge to things and 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 but the thing that got me was it's like it was so emotionally powerful like it it worked as, as theater and everything. And, um, so, like I, um, one thing that these essays that trash people put aside or whatever is, is just that the audience, the listener is, is having parts of them, um, lit up inside in a, in a, you know, a pure and powerful artistic experience that, that perhaps, uh, an essay about how, you shouldn't feel that for this reason and that reason is far less important than, you know.
1: Um, well, it's, it's, it's a complicated area, isn't it, you know? Um, do I go to um, – oh, I'm just trying to think. I'm having a mental block, uh, Bacon, the English Painter. I don't go to an exhibition by him and come out the other end and want to engage in gay sadomasochistic sex, you know? Like uh, I don't listen to Nick Cave songs about misogyny and murder and want to go out and and rape and kill a woman, you know, any more than I do when I hear old blues songs. I don't, you know, listen to or read a, a William Faulkner story like Barn Burning and... Want to terrorize my children and set fire to the village, you know. Um, but I am aware of the theatre of it, and I am aware that there is a genuine, there is something real in it. There is a real darkness in it, and there is a real report from the front lines of a, a of a very sort of um, disturbing energy. Uh, and yeah. so, the, the the violence in it is artistic. The violence in it is theatrical and the violence provides a kind of journey um, to make you look at your own energies. And and I don't think women any more than men uh, uh, are above a a, a sort of, uh, you know, the the fantasy of homicidal rage, for instance, uh, and and the process of how one exorcises it often does come through music or theatre or just understand it better in ourselves. Why are we, why am I acting, why do I feel, where does rage and anger and hurt uh, and injury sit in my life? I mean, art provides a kind of window into looking at that in in oneself. Um, So it's got an important role to play. And, again, I think in the present time there's this, desire through everything from trigger warnings and safe spaces to whatever to sort of negate the necessary voyage in, into the dark side of who we are and
0: you
1: know uh not all of dick's work is about that but i think the best of his work certainly ventures into those areas uh and i think any artist who does that is an important artist and i, I, I don't i don't need them to be perfect human beings to justify the the value of that art in my life, and that art does not make me then behave, you know, in an A equals B kind of way. Um,
0: yeah, we're not all Caravaggio because we look at Caravaggio. Well,
1: that's right. Yeah, exactly. I'm not off. I don't don't look at some Caravaggio and go <laughs> go off down the road to have a sort of like it's 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 too simple. Of course, what we do have undoubtedly, uh, I think, that rock and roll because of its its sonic power live. And cinema, because of its technological and visual power, that there are so there are there is an undeniable uh, additional uh, drive that paintings and books, for instance, I think are, are much less likely to to uh, to do to you. So you get a, a sort of an adrenalized hit. Um, I mean that that is is true, and that means that of course you can kind of generate violent behaviour at a rock concert. You can create a film that that does sort of inspire pretty kind of aberrant behaviour. Um, so there's something in the nature of the mediums and the moments that uh, is an additional kind of red zone to be aware of. Um, but you know, I, I think, you know, I, I mean, this is really ultimately, if we kind of to bring it back to to Nick in some sort of rooted way that's why the the one of the reasons why the birthday party was disbanded because they were attracting more and more violent audiences and they had seen themselves as an artistically violent group in the sense of explore, exploring violence darkness and aggression through the artistry of their songs but they were getting people coming along who just simply wanted to engage in sort of aggression and violence. And to counter that, they began to play slower and slower, which only made them more powerful and frightening. Uh, And the audience reaction, particularly in Europe, was just getting out of control. And they just got sick of... And in that, you began to see Nick's contempt for his audience growing because he's seeing all these people who are sort of coming purely for the aggressive side of things and he holds them in complete sort of distaste and in some ways is provoking greater aggression and eventually the whole sort of loop just sort of closes down and they just go you know we just don't want this anymore we don't want these kind of people and he didn't want to make that kind of music anymore not in that way anyway
0: that's interesting and on the um, artistic provocation side I uh, sorry he he uh, admires or appreciates Jermaine Greer without agreeing with everything she says but but with the idea of You know, speaking your mind, provoking ideas, provoking debate, Hmm. Um, you know, putting some, throwing some uh, curly ones out there for people to get them off their balance and out of their, you know, routine thought. Um, But again, she's, you know, she hasn't lived in Australia forever. And uh, this just, again, made me go back to... um, you and your process of getting this book done and, and the kind of middle period, your lost years or whatever of, of this long and, and difficult project, but in Therule because um, Therule being where D.H. Lawrence um, stayed for five weeks, I believe in like 1920 or, or maybe less than that in 1922 and uh, stayed in a house there uh, had very little to do apparently with, um, with, uh, you know, society and he was out and about a bit and he, 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 read a lot, but, but like camped in Thoreau, cocooned in Thoreau, he then writes what Kangaroo, which I feel has some of the most, um, succinct and, and, and beautifully precise and suggestive takes on the Australian landscape, on mateship, on, um, the anti-intellectualism, of Australia, all this, but he, he, you know, from, from sitting in a holiday house kind of thing in Thoreau. And, you know, then in Kangaroo, he's talking about, um, how each individual in Australia feels himself pledged to put himself aside, keep himself half out of count, um, to not stand out, to, to, to not think too much, to not say too much, to be in a kind of like unspoken communion with your mates, um, and and during this to go blank inside and your withheld self, and then he talks about the how this ties into the landscape, um, the indifference, the what does he call it, called? the fern dark indifference of remote golden Australia, not to care, uh, just to keep enough grip on the machine to run the machinery of the day, to not think or strain or make any effort to consciousness and all this kind of thing, and it's um, it, you know it's just propulsive factor where where people kind of at times thinkers artists whatever basically i know australia's not the only one does this but flee australia Mm. and then and then you know get kind of attached to it at a great distance um but the though like did you did you feel anything there because also you know nick cave is um you know was uh influencing in one way or another by by Brett Whiteley, and there's mm. some interesting parallels there, but as you write in the book, Brett, Brett Whiteley flames out on heroin, Nick Cave survives heroin. But but, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but didn't Brett Whiteley die in Thoreau from yeah, heroin?
1: Yeah, he did. That's and, correct. And so
0: did you Did you feel much in th- oh, Yeah,
1: sure. I felt a lot in things in Thoreau. Yeah, I mean, that was where, in a way, that's the sort of hidden heart of the book because that's where i kind of recovered and came back to it and came back to myself i I was actually living in a a shack uh at the back of this surface friend's house that was literally next door to where dh lawrence had lived um so we were like kind of neighbors in parallel worlds um That description kind of rings a lot of bells for me about myself as well as um, I think any Australian would sort of recognise themselves in it. Uh, And I think Kangaroo has sort of improved as a book because some of the the themes of the rise of a kind of proto-fascist group that that was part of the narrative drive of Kangaroo were kind of mocked at the time, but I don't think it seems so funny now. And... um, uh, yeah, but that, that's Lawrence's sort of feel for the landscape and for the, the the culture and and that sort of kind of keeping yourself sort of hidden or silent or erased within it is was is just incredibly um, perceptive. Um and yeah, I mean I can listening to you kind of give that summary made me think about the book and that sort of refusal to sort of accept that uh that uh, came not just from Nick but from uh, a lot of the people around him one way or another uh, not all of whom exceeded so there is that sort of feeling in the book of you know Nick and, and the band succeed but a whole lot of others sort of fall back into the the vortex of, of what Australia can be and and so there's that sort of um, sense of, of dreaming and suffering kind of going on in a in a collective and and social way uh that that has a lot to do with the formation of nick as a an artist uh and the the process of sort of getting out of um you know how kind of you know blank and cruel and controlling australia can be because i think earlier we talked about this sort of anti-authoritarian thing which is indeed very powerful in australia but there is also a very kind of controlling uh, social sphere uh, where you shouldn't get too big for your boots, to, to use a phrase, and where um, there's a there's a, a terrific sort of inhibiting uh, pressure, and it, it does actually require almost a degree of psychic violence to 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 break out of it um and uh maybe that's true of any artist anywhere that they have to reject the norms uh and the the, the peer pressures of, of things around them uh to um to to just get free and do the work that they have to do and maybe there's also a compulsion in it too that it's not just a reaction that there's just something in their chemical makeup that they they do it and they can't help it, and perhaps that's why some artists, you know, die trying to, to do what they do, whether it's it's Van Gogh or Brett Whiteley, and while others are able to kind of smash the chains all together and, and advance.
0: Yeah, I mean, like one of the um, – you know, having moved out of Australia recent times, uh, various Australian phrases – in my mind that kind of just pop out of nowhere as I live somewhere without hearing those all the time. And one of them is the insult. You think he thinks he's good <laughs> or, you know, she thinks she's good or something. And that's <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: it's like a yeah.
0: worst thing you could do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You,
1: you, you think you're so hot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, did, um,
0: did drugs mean anything to Nick Cave? You know, uh, and I asked this in terms of, um, you know, there's a move or or a body of kind of belief or justification or explanation with drugs that it's like a addiction is a disease, and um, and it do, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Versus, you know, those who would interpret addiction in various ways, but but other but other people say no. Well, six percent of the population are prone to, um, you know, like losing it with a substance of whatever kind and so on. But does, to, to Nick anyway, does does heroin um, and whatever else he's, al- he's relied on over the times he's tried not to use heroin, does it have any meaning to him? Uh, I think that, well,
1: I mean, that's that's sort of part of the story. I mean, obviously in Boy on Fire you're seeing the beginnings of, of, of Nick uh, and Roland S. Howard in particular uh, taking uh, heroin. I mean, they were really all taking every drug under the sun except for Mick Harvey, who who at the time didn't even drink, uh, which is remarkable given the nature of people around him. Um, But thank God for that because he was the one who sort of kept the whole machine organised and running along with with Phil Calvert while the others just went right off the beam. Um, And I think you can certainly hear the way... uh, uh, I mean, it's not in the, the book, but you, you're seeing the beginnings of how heroin feeds into all these other artistic and creative influences and creates a kind of chemical culture for the crystal ballroom uh, scene in St Kilda that, that Nick and the Boys Next Door were a part of and, and for really what became uh, the birthday Party as well and and their music so it's undoubtedly an influence i think it does influences things like the lyrics the kind of you know, unexpected and and aggressive um connections you know the the weird sort of dark dreaminess and it was definitely affected their image as well you, you can't say that that their image wasn't sort of part of of, of their mystique and how they presented themselves as kind of you know, junky, kind of you know show down at the OK Corral outlaws on stage. That was that was all kind of a feature of the what became the birthday party. But I, I think too, you know, that eventually um, the appeal of the drugs as having some kind of ability to open other worlds, um, you know, fell away. Uh, and by the time you're looking at, you know, a record in Nick Cave's career like *The Boatman's Call*, which is a great album, but it's also as much about uh, exhaustion with drugs, I think, as much as it's about, you know, his sort of failed relationships with Vivian Carnero and PJ Harvey, and and you know, he's just running out of steam. Like, and you know, again, as you get older you don't recover so well and all of a sudden you're finding that you know drugs and alcohol instead of being something that you can kind of um explode through and and find sort of reckless spirit in suddenly you're on a three-day recovery pattern and you're depressed and it's not helping you or your work anymore you just don't have the the youthful zest and energy and um you know, and along the way too. Particularly, you know, unlike I'm, I'm talking more about drinking when I use that, those descriptions. But when you've, um, you know, you're seeing friends die from overdoses and you're only surviving yourself through through luck, it just starts to all get boring, really boring. Uh, and but and uh, and well. this the, anything that the drug might have sort of given you as a a young person has has long ago exhausted itself and it's actually you're just dragging a, a ball and chain around by the ankles really and, and kidding yourself so of course by then the problem is that addiction is, is well and truly set in and no matter how strong or talented or egotistical you might be you're really a servant to the drug and it's and not a lot of people don't can't get out of that. And I see a lot of artists around now who uh, they've totally lost their mojo because they haven't been able to to grow um, and change, and they can't grow or change because they're still within the drug sensibility of something that that they've been within for twenty years. They're stuck. Their consciousness is is held inside the the sort of heavy honey of the of uh, the drug of heroin or, or or of alcoholism or whatever it might be. They're in aspic or something, you know, if they're, they're just stuck. So, you know, the only way then out is to get over your addiction and that's not easy. I just,
0: I saw that, like, so that fellow, that very prominent psychoanalyst and, and psychiatrist, I believe, Darian Leder is mm. has been or is Nick Cave's therapist mm. and... Um, Darian later I mean is a kind of interesting unusual thinker but I mean he's he's seems to me quite strongly in the psycho analytical you know post-Freudian kind of tradition or Freudian rather than a um, uh, group of psychologists and psychiatrists who or you know the main body now that have rejected all that but that I mean that kind of suggests to me there that that Nick Cave would be looking at his yearning for, or need and craving, and, and uh, the role of drugs in his life in terms other than, oh well, I have you know, a uh, disorganized attachment uh, psychological relationship with my deceased father, and I have this other disorder or that uh, post traumatic stress situation and things. Hence, I'm more inclined to, or you know, proclivity for this in combination with my genetics or whatever. And more likely to be looking at himself as a kind of um, semi-mythological being in some ways, like a a soul that 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 has um, holes and 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 unformed areas and pains, and you know the unconscious is powerful and all this. So, do you get any sense from him if how he looks at himself in the um, or if there ever is a cold light of day with him in terms of uh, is. Does he see himself as someone who'd have a bunch of psychological diagnoses that would lend themselves to drug addiction and things? Or does he look himself as a life that's experienced extremes and, um, and, and uh, you know, exiles of kinds, whether it's been sent to boarding school in Melbourne and, the, and then the death of his father and all this stuff. And he's just a raw soul experiencing what the world has. As opposed to, you know, opening the DSM manual and saying, oh, yes, well, you have this psychological disorder and that one and so on.
1: Well, I mean, I, I, I mean I, 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 I'm not an expert on Darian Leader, but my impression is that he, he too is, it doesn't sort of simply reduce people to a, a set of disorders. I, th- I think Nick certainly views himself through mythological and spiritual readings. Um, and looks to both mystic teachings and and mythical stories for some sort of uh, uh, logic to, to all these things. Obviously he's aware of sort of sort of psychological damage and difficulties in his life from you know, uh, the, the trauma of his father's uh, death at eight when Nick was 21 and, and Nick's kind of complicated connections to that. Uh, to to the, the 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 truly traumatic death of his son Arthur uh, from a cliff fall, um, and and just the whole trajectory of, of Nick's life and the people that have sort of passed away along the way, and you know, I, I think he finds I don't know whether consolation is the right word, but some meaning in those mythical stories and and consolation more in the you know, mystic teachings, whether it's his interest in the, the, the book of Mark in the Bible and the teachings of Jesus or earlier on the, the ferocity and rage of the Old Testament as a kind of vehicle to sort of exercise his own you know, anger. Uh, and And more recently this sort of weird... Sense of, of a sort of mystical dreaming world that he's 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 moved into that, where the violence where there's both violence and and beauty and where memory and the present are all sort of mingling in some strange ways, really in a in a new space over the last three four albums. It'll be interesting to see where he he goes with that. You know, um, so I don't know whether I'm answering your question very well or not. I'm just thinking about it as I speak. Uh, but he, uh, I don't think he views the, the things that have happened to him as as problems to be solved, you know? Uh, yep. you know, in the kind of conventional psychological sense. I mean, they obviously sort of empower his songwriting and his songwriting, you know, uh, for... For Ill and for better um, is probably the the, the the healthiest thing in him, you know, like it is for any artist, you know. So, you know, he kind of explores consciously and unconsciously a whole lot of stuff and has all his life that, that a lot of people, you know, don't even reflect on for more than a minute. Um, so, you know, uh, I think... I think he's only got to maybe the better place he's at now uh, because he's been to all those other sort of dark places in his his songs in the past, and you know, I don't know again, you know what what has sort of messed us up and the mistakes we've made is also what kind of hopefully we we learn from and makes us better in the the long run. And and this, again, makes me think about the the current vibe for identity politics and this sort of simplified view of human nature and safe space and and like, you know, like, is that that really going to make us better human beings in the long run? I I think a lot of it is just double talk and hiding. uh, And we still need art that kind of takes risks and and people that admit their fallibilities and, and their worst and and as well as sort of seek out their best in their work to to get a real sense of who we all are as, as human beings, and to get anything decent in the way of art and music, you know, like I I, I don't go to to art for a sort of PR exercise, like to, to get some affirmation in some sort of simplified sense. It's like, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah sure. I mean, I might love a pop song that makes me feel good, sure, you know, it, you know, like, uh, but but. I, I don't go to the, that that's not like a policy that I, I'm seeking in, in as a guarantee in everything I hear see and listen to that would just be a woeful way to be in. I mean it would actually be a kind of totalitarian state really.
0: Yeah and I, I, in I was looking here a line from that you wrote in there about Nick cave um, having insomnia uh thinking about his dad and who his dad was and all this and so on and um then you got this line it may be that certain questions about those we love are never answered yeah and yeah it's like not i guess there's no formula there's no answer yeah yeah well i mean mystery to be lived yeah i
1: mean in in the book like nick's father colin cave is uh, a huge influence on nick uh through the interest in music, through interest in theatre, through particularly through interests in literature, uh, through the Ned Kelly mythology that Nick's father was obsessed with, just in all kinds of ways. He was, he was a larger-than-life figure uh, and Nick butted heads with him and their relationship sort of got more and more difficult and then, boom, all of a sudden Nick's father is killed in a car crash Uh, Nick is causing both his father and his mother a lot of grief at the time and is in trouble with the cops. So his father dies right when Nick is creating the most difficulties for for his father and his mother. Uh, And so there's this sort of sense of the the father's death being caught up with a whole bunch of unresolved issues, if you want to kind of use that psychological phrase. So there's the anger that was never resolved. There's the, the, the guilt about what he was up to when his father died. There's the, you know, h- how much he kind of had made things hard for his mother too at the time. And so it's a whole bunch. And th- and yet, of course, there is genuine grief and, and love. And, you know, and so it's all all these con- complicated and contrary feelings all mixed up in this one incident and you know i mean i I mentioned before the influence of heroin on the birthday party but of course probably the biggest influence on the birthday party was the death of nick Cave's father in a in an accident and how that kind of trauma propelled nick out into the world and sort of changed his whole sort of attitude to songwriting and to you know, writing about kind of sort of death and to, to, to utilising his anger in his music, all these kind of things. that really kind of galvanised him. Um, so, I mean, once again, we're kind of talking about stuff where there's no kind of simple plus or minus to it. It's just a whole bunch of things in this big sort of dark, difficult mess and then trying to kind of explore it and sort of figure it out and exercise it and... And, and, and make use of it and, and, and get beyond it or, or give it a place that's meaningful.
0: But it, it, it certainly, um, I mean, your book is, like, heavily reported. Like I mean, you've, it's just beautifully sound with its research and reporting. Mm-hmm. But it, it, this the story itself, even with that grounding in reporting, lends itself to, to mythology. It's like, because doesn't Colin Cave, Nick's father, Die this you know death on the on the, on this road by himself and things just days after Nick is arrested for what could be seen as stealing a throne like he yeah just takes this throne like seat right <laughs> mm. you know, steals a throne and then his father is like within days is is struck dead you know yeah. like car goes off the road for maybe because he swear for a branch or something, but yeah. like it's, um, yeah. In the midst of all this tension and competition between them and Nick trying to, as you've written there, um, show him his, his creations and what he's doing and the father dismissing them and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the next uh-huh. thing, Nick steals a throne, his father's struck dead. I <laughs> know
1: <laughs> so. oh, there's a lot of stuff like that in Nick's life where it's just like, uh, you know, like it's, it's again, if you know, it's, it's that, that's the beauty of nonfiction. You know, if you, if it wasn't, uh, true you just go well no that's that's too corny you know we can't yeah you know, can't that's just all too neat but i mean a, again though nick's been writing about this stuff in song a lot too so he's sort of woven mythology back across all that material but the 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 autobiographical material has all been there and the, the weird coincidences of just what you're describing then about the throne and the the stealing of the throne and the the death of his father, there's there's so many things like that uh, in the story that that, that web together um, very easily to to make the story both a a biography and yet a larger-than-life tale. Uh, And, yeah, it's almost Shakespearean uh, in in its nature. Um, So... Yeah, you know, I've been kind of lucky in that regard, but it, it's
0: complex. Well, I mean, I don't want to lead you into the years afterwards too much and, you know, right through to the death of his son, because that's, some um, I guess, possibly material for uh, the next books you write, whether it's the, the ferocious years through the 80s and things and into the 90s or… Or on to the death of his son and stuff, but whole um, of the story in in each phase. And um, I wanted to ask though to to kind of wrap things up. Like, do you, do you are you working on anything now? Like writing, whether you know new cave related or completely otherwise. What you putting pen to paper, proverbially, Yeah.
1: On anything at the moment? Yeah, well, it's funny because I've, I've been feeling a real restlessness in me. Uh, the book came out uh about six months ago now almost i think here in australia and then in the uk it's just about to be released in the usa through atlantic books um there and um so i've been doing a lot of sort of publicity and promotion stuff around it i'm I'm gearing up for doing a volume two that will at this stage basically be about uh birthday party era in london and and uh uh, Nick Cave's sort of solo sort of formation in Berlin with the, the Bad Seeds across the 80s. So that's kind of arguably his, his darkest sort of face, and and, um, uh, and some sort of still see it as his greatest face. Um, I've also got a, a novel that I've had on the back burner that my publishers are keen to, to see sort of develop some kind of fixing up the manuscript for that. Uh, I did it for my MA in writing at UTS here in Sydney and um, and I, I feel pretty good about that too and I'm glad my publishers are keen to see me develop that aspect to, to things. You know, I'm always writing poetry all the time but, but you know, I'm not expecting anybody to, uh, you know, rush out and sort of mob me to, to publish that, but uh, but I just like doing it and it's in a way that writing of the poetry gave me a kind of energy line to be able to write the biography on Nick and it's interesting to see how much poetry's been an incredibly powerful influence on his work in the last decade, both lyrically and melodically, I believe. Uh, in terms of how they've had to shape the music around the way Nick's lyrics have shifted into almost a pure kind of poetic expression, um, and yeah, you know, I'd, I'd like to do I'd like to do another nonfiction work that's l- less um, endless uh, than the stuff with Nick, like something that's focused around an event uh, of some kind that I could complete quickly across possibly a six-month period um, in, a, in a shorter book kind of project that was journalism-driven, but again, where the narrative is kind of inherent in the incident. Um, I mean, you know, In Cold Blood, I guess the archetypal legendary work of, of that nature, but of course that took Truman Capote six years and nearly destroyed him, and I've been there on that kind of trip, so I'd rather do something that's a bit more user-friendly for my own sake. Um, so yeah, I mean yeah, lots of stuff. But I, I feel restless because I've, I've kind of been a little bit caught inside the the, the loop of the, the book finally coming out and the, the publicity around it, and and, and I, I'm, I'm kind of feeling edgy now to to move
0: on. And you not know, tempted to just take up heroin now? No, yeah. To get rid of the edginess. No,
1: I mean, I mean, this is kind of the funny thing. Like reading this Nick's book, writing the biography about Nick, and obviously I'm moving into sort of phase two. But I mean, it actually just makes me want to be as clear headed as I can be, um, and to to be kind of healthier. And you know, I mean, the funny thing is that Boy on Fire has actually been selling to a lot of young people from what I can glean that's just anecdotally but there's been uh, bookshops and record stores have been telling me they've been getting a lot of young people buying the book and by young I mean people in the I mean really young like late teens you know very early 20s if uh, and that was that's just entirely uh, accidental I, I had never thought especially that the book would appeal to an audience of readers that young and I kind of imagined it would be Something that kind of older Nick K and middle-aged Nick Cave fans would connect to, but of course, a book called Boy on Fire, the young Nick Cave, that's a portrait of the artist as a young man. Naturally, it's going to appeal to, yeah, you know, kids that are in their teens and very early twenties who are forming themselves as 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 young creative beings. Um, they're going to be curious to see. Uh, how that happened for Nick and for all the people are, are around him and um so I'm, I'm I'm really glad about that but I I I I don't think the book is a recommendation to to go down the same r- roads it's kind of I hope both inspirational and sort of cautionary at the same time cuz you know in, in Nick's larger life story which was we mentioned before really he he's spent his whole life getting back to certain things that were sort of lost or that got kind of buried along the path you know and and i think that's that goes to the glow of wangaratta is a sort of kind of sacred sort of memory within him
0: yeah it's a it's a complicated life like um just logistically emotionally and yeah. you know what he had two kids born in two different places to two different women 10 days apart at the same time yeah, also 10 stuff. days apart yeah. so that's a good way to
1: end one relationship at least. Um, the, uh, But, yeah, we all have complicated lives. This is the thing, you know. By the time you're hitting 60, you know, you know getting a bit older, you know, you've, you've lived more than one life usually. It's like kind of you've, if cats have nine lives, how many lives you've lived by then? Four, five, six, you know. You've had a few relationships. Maybe you've had kids. You've had some ups and downs, you know, you've done some great things, you've done some not so great things. You know. I, I think um, yeah, that's the the grand thing about it. But it it's it's it can be bruising, and it can be hard and you know, like you've got to kind of kind of there's just that cycle of having to rise up again out of the what would seem to sort of almost crush you and I, I hope that's a kind of theme of on fire and of the project more largely that you know that to, to sort of keep coming back out of the you know punching your way back out of the the sort of darkness that that you kind of fall into or invite yourself into yeah you
0: know? yeah it's fascinating a, like one of his friend childhood friends has got that animal strength yeah um just don't give up just keep going yeah. i mean mind you there's so, there's so many scenes where it could have all just ended there'd be no more Nick cave no Nick cave like we're he and his friend's bandmates steal a car and then think it'd be fun to drive it into a power <laughs> pole. <power laughs> yeah. That's right. Like it's like, you could have just ended there anyway. Yeah, yeah. No. But thank you very much, um, Mark for joining no us on the new books network talking about boy on fire. Um, we'll have the full details in the, on the show notes here. So it's out in Australia, about to be out in the UK and then, uh, also about to come out in the U S uh, is that right? It's,
1: um, the book is, um, has, came out in Australia through HarperCollins in November. Uh, it came out in the UK uh, through uh, Atlantic Books and Alan and Unwin uh, earlier this year, and it's just about to come out in the USA through Atlantic Books uh, on June the 4th.
0: Excellent. Mm. Okay, well, congratulations and... Uh talk to you in uh 10 years time (laughs) about part two hopefully sooner than that but
1: you never know your luck (laughs) you never know okay no worries
0: thanks mark